Welcome to Experiences Canada's Allyship Podcast Series. After participating in a four-month program of bi-weekly webinars on various social justice topics, over 50 youth aged 14 to 18 from across Canada gathered in Winnipeg, Manitoba from May 6th to 8th, 2022 to share their ideas and strategies for community action and youth engagement. As a culminating project for the program, the youth were asked to work collaboratively to develop, record, and edit these podcast episodes on youth allyship and advocacy. We are excited to share their work with the world and provide them with a platform to amplify their voices. Enjoy! podcast where we're going to talk about reconciliation. We'll be talking about the impacts of colonialism and how non-Indigenous people can become allies. Before we begin, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge and give thanks to the Creator for bringing us together here today on the territory of the Anishinaabe, the Dakota, the Dene, the Métis, and the Cree. We are blessed that we have the opportunity to gather from all directions across Canada I would like to acknowledge Mother Earth for providing us with all that sustains and protects us, earth, air, fire, and water. I want to acknowledge that we are connected with and to the land animals, fish, plants, bodies of water, sun, moon, and stars. I want to acknowledge our ancestors who have walked these lands before us, and I want to thank them for paving our way and acknowledge their resilience because they are the reason that we're still here today. So as we come together, let's put our minds and hearts in a good way so that we too can pave a good path for the next seven generations. Hey everybody, my name is Muscon Wurich. My pronouns are she and her. I'm from Surrey, British Columbia, which is a traditional unceded territory of Coast Salish people. And I'll pass the floor to Kelly. Hi, my name is Kelly. I use she, her pronouns. I'm a 17-year-old Naskpi Montagna woman with mixed heritage. I currently reside in Rocky Point, PEI on Mi'kma'ki territory, but I'm originally from the Tassinan Nation in Labrador. I'll pass it off to Kaya. Thanks, Kelly. Grace, Geno, hello. My name is Kaya. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a 17-year-old Mi'kmaq Seneca woman from Niagara, Ontario, which is the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples. My original territory is Waikagama First Nation in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. So I think it's important to mention that before we begin, um, reconciliation is a topic that's ongoing. It's it's something that is continuing to impact uh, Indigenous peoples today, and it's so wide and it's so broad. It's a very, very big umbrella, and it's not something that we can just cover in 45 minutes, and it's not something that people will be able to learn from one podcast session. It's something that you have to be, you know, contributing to, like, here now, but also um, later on. Um, Something else that I wanted to mention um, is that you can't understand reconciliation without the truth. So I figured that um, we'd start off by talking a little bit about um, Canada's past and the impact of colonization. Yeah, I think it's a great idea to start with colonization, where it all started. Um, And Europeans came to Canada to assimilate culture and through genocide which created residential schools, which we have talked about a lot in the past two years. And residential schools are a really big topic in our education system, um, rightfully so, because they kind of assimilated our culture um, by, you know, abusing children and ripping them away from their teachings, their traditional knowledge, and kind of, um, you know, the famous quote, taking the Indian out of the child. And those impacts continue to affect people today. And those 
colonial systems are still embedded within society today, and I think that's something that a lot of people don't recognize because it's just kind of brainwashed into our social norms. We are made to think that it's the past and it's no longer happening right now when it's part, it's systematic and it continues and people still think certain ways, which we'll get into terminology, but we need to realize that everything is still happening today, whether or not we have residential schools or not, and it is a big part of history and we need to have that discussion and we need everyone's voices to be heard. Absolutely, I think the biggest part is understanding that it's really not a piece of Canadian history because we're still facing the impacts of that. So it's, yes, maybe the actual events of assimilation happened in history, but there's, their impacts are still happening today. So, yeah. yeah. And it goes through with generational trauma. Someone who may not have gone to a residential school has trauma from these residential schools. And rightfully so, it is very traumatic. Um, and we have to think about all the survivors and always keep them in our mind because they went through something absolutely horrendous and you can't even put that into words, which is really, it will be really hard to, you can't in a 45 minute podcast even start with residential schools. There's just too much to say. Mm -hmm. So I think, so I think that it would be great to start off, um, also just talking about, um, proper terminology, um, more specifically Indian, Aboriginal, and Indigenous. So a lot of people use these outdated terms. Um, and I think that just giving you a little bit of context on what each term means and, and what is appropriate and what is inappropriate is um, important just so we can all be mindful uh, moving forward. So the term Indian originates from the idea that European explorers assumed that uh, they were in India when they came to Canada. Uh, so they immediately saw indigenous peoples on our land and thought, oh, they're Indians because we are in India. So that's a term that's still used uh, very, very widely across Canada in our legislation. I'm not sure if anybody's heard about the Indian Act, but it's still used like as the Indian Act, even though technically we aren't Indians. Uh, also, Aboriginal is an outdated term because it kind of categorizes Indigenous peoples as abnormal. So that's why we don't use that term Aboriginal because, you know, we aren't abnormal. And you know what I find crazy is that in my textbook, we still use the word Indian and Aboriginal. And I think like we really need to change that like, right away because that's not okay. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of inappropriate terminology like embedded in our education systems in our legislation and I think that that's something that uh, we really need to make changes on. Um, so the proper term would be indigenous because obviously we are indigenous to Canada, to Turtle Island, to the land. So moving forward just make sure to be mindful of that and that's the term that we want to be using. Yeah. Indigenous is an umbrella term for the various nations that live across Turtle Island. There are three branches in Canada, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit. Um, we need to remember that and not use the improper terminology. Yeah, and I think that there's also a lot of misconceptions about specifically the Métis. People think that the Métis are people who are specifically just mixed heritage of European and a First Nations, most likely, or Inuit uh, 
person, but this is just not the case. Métiers are their own people. Uh, they were, I guess, technically they are mixed between indigenous and, and European heritage, but it's generational. Like, it was from generations ago, like, mixed heritage from, like, hundreds of years ago. So since then, you know, like, they become their own collective people, and I think that that's something that uh, needs to be recognized. So if you are mixed between a white and indigenous DNA, I guess, you are you are not Métis, because that doesn't categorize you as Métis, because they are their own people. So we kind of want to go into more of the contemporary aspect of reconciliation. Previously, we just mentioned about the historical impacts and how history isn't technically history because indigenous peoples continue to face, you know, the ongoing impacts of colonization and, and such like that. So we wanted to go through a couple of examples of things that indigenous peoples are facing today and the inequities that are going on within communities across Canada. Yeah, one of the things we need to talk about is compassion fatigue. Compassion fatigue is a term that describes the physical, emotional, and physiological impact of helping others, often through experiences of stress or trauma. Yeah, so I feel like for myself as an Indigenous person, it can get really exhausting because yeah. people kind of put you in a position of constantly trying to educate others on the trauma of your own people. And that's like, you're becoming re-traumatized essentially. So I think that we really need to work together collectively, both mm -hmm. non-Indigenous and Indigenous people, uh, so that the responsibility is not always put on Indigenous peoples to essentially like re-traumatize themselves because... Yeah, like there are resources out there for people to learn about these things and not traumatize someone else to talk about their own things. And that's something people need to start taking initiative and doing that instead of like obviously listening to indigenous voices and listening to stories and all those but we also need to not fatigue everybody um that can be really hard for people of course and i think also like not always relying on indigenous people to talk about the trauma but also on the culture and, and you know celebrating the beauty of our teachings and all of that because a lot of the time people think about reconciliation and they think oh we need to change history like we need to change like all of the bad things that happen you can't change history you can't change history like it's it's something that's still ongoing but like you know recognize our culture and, and you know be appreciative of all of those those things that um we do in our in our lives yeah and imagine how relieving it would be instead of being asked about trauma being asked about culture and appreciating the culture like it's just much more relieving yeah. talking about something lighter and like a lot happier and things that make people feel good mm -hmm. not traumatized yeah exactly so i think that kind of segues into our next thing that we wanted to talk about which is um the personal and general impacts of uh, reconciliation. So, talking about trauma, actually, I, I wanted to ask you, Kelly, about intergenerational trauma and um, maybe what that means to you. Um, for me, my family has very much not, they don't think about where they come from as much anymore. They choose not to. It's not passed down the way it normally is. And that broke my heart when I found out. And I've always felt more connected to it but 
looking at it, I've never had anyone to tell me what we are, who we are, all of our traditions. I don't get that. And that stems from my great grandmother being adopted by white family. And that it all just kind of disappeared. And I think that that really, it just, it's integrational trauma. Like, it, we lost so much because of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's just really, it really hurts my heart yeah. to think that way. Because as I get to know more people, more indigenous people, it's just like, I get to learn more things. Like, being here for this podcast, I get to learn more. And I finally have people teaching me things that I've always wanted to learn. Yeah, and I think also just to sum up like what intergenerational trauma actually is, it kind of talks about the like loss of cultural identity through the generations. So when we think about residential schools, you know, maybe that was somebody's grandma who went to residential school and they got brainwashed into this, you know, colonized colonial ways, and then that gets passed down to their children. And those children, they pass that down to their children. And that continues to go on today. Like, I have friends, I know people who are the same age as me, and they are the first generation in their family to have not attended residential school. And I think it's crazy. It's just absolutely insane. So. Like, you think about it, residential schools weren't that long ago. They were barely 25 years ago. Yeah, 1996 is the time the last residential school was open. So I'd say the majority of everybody's parents, I mean, depending on yeah, who you are, where you are, who, who you are, where you are, your parents were probably alive during the time that residential schools were still up and running. Yeah, and I find it crazy. I was talking to one of my teachers and she was telling me she went to school while there were still residential schools going on and she said, they knew nothing about residential schools. They had no idea what they were, who was in them. They did not know a thing. And she it baffles her to this day, where she's like, I went to school the same time as children were going through residential schools. And it it I like it's it was not that long ago. And that's why we still need to talk about it. It's not history. Yeah. And you wanna know what it, it also impacts like, you know, the, the public. You know, a lot of non-indigenous peoples across Canada, they have these misconceptions that indigenous peoples aren't on a healing path, which is completely false. You know, we're still actively healing from from this intergenerational trauma and we're still trying to regain that connection with our culture. And I think that resilience is something that's so, so special for people who are still reconnecting with their culture. You know, I think that this opportunity at Experiences Canada has been a great way for you, you know, as you shared to like actually learn about um, your indigenous identity. Yeah, I finally have people to teach me these things. I don't have anyone else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's great, and yeah, now like resilience is the biggest thing you can carry with you on this path of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, speaking about this podcast, you know, we're we're currently gathered here in Winnipeg, and I think it's so important that we recognize the high traffic area of MMIWG2S. So if the listeners aren't familiar with what that term is, is the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls and Two-Spirited Individuals. So basically that refers to the unproportionately large percentage of Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirited individuals across Canada who are victimized um, by violence, sexual abuse, and and essentially like homicide. You know, there's, there's such a large percentage and we're gathered here 
um, on May 5th, yeah. which is the Red Dress Day, to honor those individuals who, who were lost in and recognize that, you know, they're, they're still in our hearts, you know, and, yeah. and, and our hearts are with their families. And I think that that's something that we need to touch on because that's something that's still going on today. Oh, every day you see missing posters for missing indigenous women, girls, and two-spirited individuals. And I think, like, it, we need to talk about it. They don't get talked about enough. And that's why we need Red Dress Day to remember But Red Dress Day is every day, not just May 5th. Of course, of course. We need to recognize them not only on this day, but like you said, every single day. And, and it's the responsibility of not only indigenous people, like I said, we're re-traumatizing ourselves by, by talking about like our own people. Like I'm an indigenous girl, like, you know, like that's like scary for me to think about. Oh, like, scary. You're, you're an indigenous woman. So I think it's important that uh, non-indigenous people can recognize that and also play their part in, in making sure that they are educated and create significant actionable items towards yeah. reconciling those relationships. Yeah, no, we, it, it's a big problem that really needs to be discussed, not just in one day, but every single day. So the next thing that we have to talk about is the 60s scoop and the millennial scoop, because they kind of go hand in hand. So uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar on this. You I'm not as familiar on this. Okay, wonderful. I'll, <laughs> I'll speak on it because my mom is actually a 60 scoop baby. So basically the 60 scoop was a period in the 60s, 70s-ish where Indigenous children were taken by Canadian Child Welfare Authorities and placed in white homes. So there were thousands of Indigenous children were taken, sometimes straight out of like the hospital and placed in these white families, which were, it, it created a very, very, very big loss of cultural identity. And I guess, yeah, I'll share the story of my mom just because, you know, it's, it's been very like prevalent in my life. Oh, so, yeah. so um, my, my nation is in Waikabama First Nation in Nova Scotia, and my grandma attended residential school. And she was, and, and you know, in the East Coast, like they were the first people to be impacted by colonial, like colonization because, you know, mm -hmm. the European settlers came from. Uh, the east and landed in the east coast so so her family was already like kind of in these colonized ways because you know her grandma and her mom all attended residential school as well so um, she ended up having this baby with a white man and it essentially was brainwashed to think that she wasn't ready to carry this child and, and um, care for it so you know it was like a bunch of nuns who essentially told her you need to get this baby up for adoption and so she did and my mom got adopted out to a German family moved to Germany um, grew up there then came back to Canada and Montreal and only learned about her indigenous identity when she was around 25 years old so 25 years of her life she wasn't able to reconnect with her culture and she she called up my grandma she was like hey like can we meet? Like, are you okay with that? And my grandma was like, yeah, we can meet, but I don't want you, I don't want anybody in my community to know about you because I'm just so like, she didn't say this, but like, it, she's so filled with shame about, you know, my mom. Yeah. And so, um, because she was brainwashed, she was literally brainwashed by these nuns 
to like that she's not ready for this child and that this child is not good for her but she also you know that's her kid like of course she loves her kid so um yeah so i'm still on my journey of connecting with my um indigenous teachings on my maternal side because i don't live in nova scotia so i don't know the Mi'kmaq teachings that i could know and i think that that's also another impact of intergenerational trauma you know yeah, like exactly. it, it, it all ties in it all links and it's it's very very complex which is why i'm saying we can't explain this in in 45 minutes so yeah another thing i guess we can move on to the millennial scoop i just threw a lot on there <laughs> so the millennial scoop kind of refers to the current foster care system in canada so i'm not the most familiar but i have a statistic that i found that is just insane to me mm -hmm. um so in canada uh this the census was conducted in 2016. So in Canada, 52.2% of children in foster care are indigenous, but only account for 7.7% of the child population. That's crazy. Insane. Like it's insane. And it, it's crazy to think like it's like we're in a cycle. Like this already no, happened. It, it keeps going. It's it's been happening for 50 years and it continues to impact and and contribute to that loss of cultural identities, which is why we're here today to, you know, talk about reconnecting. Yeah, reconnecting, I think, is our main priority right now. Because it's just, everything ties into reconnecting in the end. As well, obviously, reconciliation. <laughs> of course. I think I said that wrong, but like, I think you know what I mean. Like, we need to reconnect, which started with Friends Island. Mm -hmm. And something about reconnecting is reconnecting with our lands. And that's really difficult because it's like embedded in our legislation. Mm -hmm. So we, are, we have the right to our own land, but like the government doesn't recognize that. Uh, they do what they can. And, and I think that's something that has been very prevalent recently is land acknowledgements. Those are things that are becoming more common now within our gatherings. We acknowledge the land on which we gather as a traditional territory of whichever nation that we're on. Yeah. And um, I think that's great. Like, I think we should definitely recognize that, but it's important that we do that mindfully. Like, we actually think like, oh, who were the people that were here before us? Oh, yeah. And I also find it crazy that being Indigenous has become political. If, yeah, it become political. It's like you don't own your identity as much as any other. Like a white person can own their identity, but an indigenous person is political. No, I know exactly what yeah. you mean. It's it's insane. No, it it's not how it should be. No, no, and it breaks my heart again. Yeah. Okay. Wait. Before we end this off, I wanted to give a little story about land acknowledgements though that I kind of gave that little spiel on what they are um, and why they're, they're okay as long as you do them mindfully because sometimes you know they play them in schools and then they play O Canada like it doesn't go hand in hand and there was this one situation at my school where they got the indigenous children or indigenous students to recite the land acknowledgement and I went to my principal and I'm like, this is not okay. So like, okay, wait. Then this is a water bottle, okay? Yeah, I'm giving you a water bottle. Okay. 
This is your water bottle. Actually. This is my water bottle. This is your water bottle. I'm taking your water bottle and I am going to keep it. I'm going to keep it and you don't get to take it. I don't get my water bottle back. No, but I want you to acknowledge that I took your water bottle. You took my water bottle. Yeah, but I'm going to keep it. Like, I'm sorry. I, I recognize that I took your water bottle. I'll, I'll give you a sip of the water, but I get to keep the water bottle. I get to keep all the water. Yeah. Like, that's what it felt like when they got the indigenous students to recite that land acknowledgement. Like, why are we acknowledging that our land was stolen? It just, it does not sit right with yeah. me. Whether you like it or not, like, reconciliation is within everything. Like, like, social justice issue, I feel like somehow reconciliation ties into that, which is so, so important. Wow, thank you, Kai and Kelly. I can't even wrap my head around it. As a non-Indigenous person, I'm grateful to sit here and have the chance to be in an environment where I can ask questions and continue to be learning throughout this allyship forum. That being said, as we move into our final topic of discussion, we have the chance to have a conversation about allyship. We're very fortunate to have the opportunity to listen and learn from Indigenous people in our journey towards truth and reconciliation. With that in mind, Kai and Kelly, what does allyship mean to you? And what is the difference between performative allyship? Alright, so allyship is when you're using your privilege to advocate for someone. You have privilege, and normally you know you have privilege, and you're going to use that privilege to help someone of a minority who doesn't have that privilege to get back up. And you're working with them, and you're being an ally, and you support them, and you care about what happens. But then we have performative allyship, and I think that's something we see a lot. <laughs> you see it amongst a lot of teenagers. And you do see it a lot with adults. I think, personally, I think it's more in adults. And compared to teenagers, it's obviously with teenagers as well. Like, I'll give an example in a second. But with adults, I find, like, yeah, I support that. But they don't do much about it. They'll say they support it. They mm -hmm. don't care. They're like, well, and they might make a few microaggressions. They also come from a different time, like, at least the, like, the people I'm thinking of, like, that group. But then you have teenagers, which then you get into social media. And on social media, they can be posting things. And for example, Instagram stories, people will post things online and then you'll republish them. You'll put them on your story and leave them there. And then the next post after that is their sandwich or something like that. They, they aren't, they don't care as much as more of a trend to them. They're like, well, right now, like when all the children they found under Camp Loops came out, they were like, oh my God, mm -hmm. that's crazy. Post. And never heard from it again. But then there are the Instagram stories where like, speaking out and you actually genuinely care and you're trying to get these messages out you're speaking your own words as well you're adding to that and that's allyship and you are trying so hard to make sure that other people's voices are heard but back to performative allyship it's like you're putting on a performance you care but you don't really care about what happens you think of it for a second same with black lives matter you think about it for two seconds mm -hmm. and then you're like well it's over now no one's talking about it protests are over like mm -hmm. It's not over. The whole social media trend, like the whole social media trend that always happens when it comes to like important issues. Many people just jump on the train and think, okay, I need to post this, but they don't really care about it. They don't really think about it. And I think Kaya, you mentioned that um, earlier on in the podcast. Yeah. So I think like also the problem with like this performative allyship and like Instagram advocacy, I guess you could call it, is that, you know, these are real life impacts <laughs> like you know like people are looking at the shallowness of the situation but they aren't recognizing like this is our reality like those unmarked graves could have been that, that that could have been our grandparents those are our relatives that that fought and 
and unfortunately like mm-hmm. didn't make it and and I think that people don't realize that they see the number and they're like wow that's crazy like Kelly said yeah post but then we see it and we're like connected to it and, mm-hmm. and it's it's very very difficult and it kind of like it kind of plays into that compassion fatigue and yeah and it's very easy to spot performative allyship it's mm-hmm. so easy it's just like you don't care and they you need to go deeper. These Instagram, like you can only put so much on an Instagram post mm-hmm. and you can republish it. If most of the time people aren't even reading it, they see it, they see the title and they're like, I'm gonna post that because mm-hmm. someone else posted it. My friend posted that and their friend posted mm-hmm. that. Everyone's posting it. Mm-hmm. You'll see the same, you'll go through all your Instagram. At least for me, I go through it, I see the same thing. And then I see these people in person and you talk about it and they're like, well, it's not my problem. It's like, well, why are you posting about mm-hmm. it then? If you don't care, stop pretending to be an ally or just become an ally. Mm -hmm. Become a real ally and Mm -hmm. start taking initiative and start working with people. Start looking at what's happening and be like, this is not okay. Like this needs to change Mm -hmm. and do something about it. Mm -hmm. Work with people about it. Like it's not that Mm -hmm. hard to grasp in my opinion. And then exactly. And at the same time, and then you have those people that don't post anything and then you have other people saying, oh, it's because you don't care. I feel like social media, it's like, if you don't post it, then it shows that you don't care, but that's not the, oh, that's exactly. not the story at all. You could be the person who's out there doing things, exactly. going to protest and not posting about yeah. it because they don't think it's a trend. Exactly. They know it's real, real life. life. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> real life. Oh my God. <laughs> that was- <laughs> A lot of people take it as a badge. They're like, I'm an ally to indigenous people because I went and I bought a pair of earrings. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, where's that money going towards? Did you buy it at a gift shop or Mm -hmm. did you buy it at a powwow from an actual indigenous person who saw you giving them the money to them, you know? And I think that that's so much more impactful. And also, you know, like, I think it's up to the indigenous people to let you know if you are an ally it's not up to yourself to make that decision you can you can but that doesn't mean don't make steps just because you want to be an ally like just do it because you want to help like you want to be a part of that change not don't do it for the badge do it for your heart do it from your heart yeah it has to come from there it can't come from your head Mm -hmm. because your head is going to be like i want to be like everyone else it has to be from the heart from the heart Thank you for sharing. I think it is important to learn the difference between allyship and performative allyship, which is very prevalent in our society. That being said, um, I will move on to the next question regarding what is appropriation and versus uh, appreciation. Do you want to start with appropriation? I will. So appropriation basically is talking about using indigenous culture as your own and pretending that you own it even though you might not be a part of it. So we see this a lot with indigenous costumes at yeah. Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> it's very, very, very pre- prevalent. Like people think like, oh, I'm going to dress up as a native person and I'm going to wear Pocahontas. Is a big Pocahontas. Yeah. And like even the misconceptions of that story are oh. totally altered. Like it's such a false story. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like costumes, like people will wear regalia. They'll wear, you know, even like I see in stores like, Walmart has moccasins on sale. I'm like, okay, like, 
Who made those? Who made those? They're like a manufacturer has made those and they're benefiting from that. They're getting financial gain from like, you know, pieces that belong to us. They are ours. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of like, it, it's, a, it's pretty sensitive because, you know, people also just don't know the difference between appropriation and appreciation. Um, so they're people who are sometimes too mindful and they're like, can I do this? Can I not do this? So I'll let Kelly kind of explain that part. So we need to learn about appreciation, which is different from appropriation, obviously. So appreciation, you need, you gotta like appreciate the culture and know where it comes mm -hmm. from. Know it's not yours, but if you want to like understanding of what it is, you have to do it the right way. And so you can start by purchasing items made by indigenous people and it like comes from them. Mm -hmm. It needs to come from them and start learning about the culture. If you have a friend who is indigenous, like ask them a few things if you want, ask them questions, like mm -hmm. get to know the culture and like have a good understanding of it. We have like Google right at your fingertips. Use it if mm -hmm. you really need to. Like start learning and like take initiative and talk to indigenous people for guidance on how to appreciate and mm -hmm. Just you can't make it your own when it's not your own. Mm -hmm. It it goes for so many different like cultures and races. Like you gotta yeah. be careful with what you do. Mm -hmm. And appreciating it is not taking it for your own. I know I said that so many times. But it's true. It's something people need to get in their head. If it's not yours and you're using it for the wrong reasons, you're using it for self-gratification, you're appropriating mm -hmm. it. So you really need to be careful with how you do it, where you buy everything, what you say, um, how you act. You can't, yeah. Mm -hmm. So you really just need to appreciate. Mm -hmm. And you can feel appreciation in you. Like, I don't know, when I appreciate something, I feel it in my chest. Yeah. When you're appreciating something yeah. so much. So that, to me, is like a big thing. Like, if you mm -hmm. can feel it in your chest, and you are appreciating something and you don't feel at all selfish. Because mm -hmm. you can feel it in like, the back of your head if you're being selfish. Yeah. Well, I might be a little bit selfish right now. Yeah. Like this, I like it doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. You feel that. Yeah. So it shouldn't be too hard to grasp the idea of mm -hmm. appropriation versus appreciation. Mm -hmm. And I also think at the same time, like you both of you bring up such great points. I also think about how media and TV shows also play such a big factor in this. Yeah. No. Absolutely. It kind of like. I feel like a lot of times too in the media, like it puts Indigenous people in the past. You know, we talk about like these films about residential schools, which I think can be very, very valuable to, um, you know, audiences who, who might enjoy films over different other types of educational mediums. Um, but yeah, no, I just think that sometimes there's also this idea of pretendians, <laughs> which are basically <laughs> essentially non-indigenous peoples who pretend to be indigenous. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they, they take all of the quote-unquote benefits of being indigenous and they use it as as a badge they're like oh i'm indigenous so give me this grant money mm -hmm. you know give me this promotion because i'm in quote-unquote indigenous when that's just false so it's like it's, it's a really big issue and especially now presently and, and you know we always want to try and include that idea of you know reconnecting with your identity mm -hmm. to indigenous peoples who might not be connected but it's hard. It's it's really difficult because there's this idea like, 
we want to make sure that you are actually indigenous and you care about the culture and you're not doing it for your own personal benefit. Sorry, no, I was going to keep going. I was going to have something to say. Yeah, go ahead. Um, that is a big thing. There are a lot of people who will try to get their status just for benefits. And I've seen that so many times. And I'm like, you have to care for the culture and not you know, pretend. <laughs> you, like, it just, that, yeah. Like, it, you know. <laughs> so that's what I have to say about that. I definitely agree. It is important to address the importance between appropriation and appreciation. Like Kelly and Kaya mentioned, cultural appropriation is taking the aspect of the culture, using it for self-gratification. That includes taking indigenous images, ideas, knowledge, and material that can cause harm to the indigenous community from which it belongs. Cultural appreciation, on the other hand, is continuously learning and connecting to the knowledge that is putting indigenous communities first. That means uplifting, supporting, and providing a platform, which I've learned throughout this whole uh, allyship forum. That being said, Kai and Kelly, in our journey towards reconciliation, what can I actively be doing as a non-Indigenous person to support Indigenous people and to create an environment where Indigenous people feel welcome in different social environments, such as school or workplaces? Yeah, I can start this one off. Yeah. I think we should just throw a bunch of ideas oh, at them. So because, many ideas. Because there's, there's a bunch of ideas and I think that like they're pretty self-explanatory. So maybe I'll go Kai and Kelly. Okay. Okay. So, supporting Indigenous-owned businesses. That's a big one. That's a big one. <laughs> Support Indigenous movements and protests. Yes. Yes. And be aware of what is happening right now. Educate yourself on what's going on because, like I said, so many things are happening in our world right now with the unmarked graves, with the MMIWG, with our child welfare system. Like, these impacts continue to affect Indigenous peoples across Canada. 94 calls to action. That is huge you can go and search it up online and look at them and you can say to yourself i like this one what can i do to help this move forward mm -hmm. take it and just put it in like okay like i can't even think of one off the head right now but just education mm -hmm. you can be like well how about i start i write to the minister of education and i say i want to start learning mm -hmm. i want this to be put in yeah. and have a motion mm -hmm. try to get it put in schools yeah you know that like it's just the little things, things count. Little things count. Yeah, but I think that's not even a little thing. Like the 94 calls to action in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is such a valuable resource. It's written for white people. It is like, <laughs> it is a legislative document that is written for white people to actually understand and use as, I mean, a toolkit, I guess, essentially. But like, it's like not really because we're like, you need to do this. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not a toolkit that people can be like, check. No, they mm -hmm. have to be implementing those things. It's mm -hmm. to keep them accountable to make sure that we can move towards reconciliation, mm -hmm. essentially. Mm -hmm. And there's so many sectors of the calls, and it's an easy read. Like mm -hmm. anybody could read it. Oh yeah. And, and um, there's sectors. There's healthcare. There's like unmarked bodies. Like how to address that. Mm -hmm. There's education. There's so many things. I think there might be like food insecurity and yeah. No, it. That's one of the biggest ones you can do. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I think everyone should do is go look right now for the 94 calls to action. Well, thank you for sharing, Kai and Kelly. The whole podcast has, I think, created a lasting impact on me and many others listening. And I feel like I've been able to learn more than anything throughout this week and kind of sit back and give you guys a platform to just you know, speak your truth. And honestly, I've 
have been able to better understand what it means to be an ally towards the Indigenous community as a settler in Canada. As we've talked about colonialism and misconceptions throughout this conversation, I wanted to ask why is it important to foster Indigenous education within school systems across Canada and what does it mean to you personally? Yeah, I'll start with this one because I do a lot of work within education at my school and my school board. And I just think that, you know, there's a really amazing quote by Maurice Sinclair that goes across the lines of, um, you know, it started with education, it's going to end with education. And I think that's a very, very valuable, like, concept, you know, like, our assimilation of our culture began in residential schools. So where is it going to be the most impactful of regaining it? through our schools and through our systems. And, you know, I think that, like I said, the, the 94 Calls to Action is a great resource because it keeps school systems and it keeps these school boards accountable to actually implement, you know, indigenous ways of knowing. And I think that's also another thing to note on. Um, make sure that we implement that in our, in our classrooms, in our education systems. Um, yeah, so the, another thing that I wanted to touch on was, uh, the difference between indigenous history mm -hmm. and indigenous ways of knowing in our curriculum. Because there are two separate things and we only focus on the indigenous history, which is already a sliver, but that's the only thing we focus on. And like I said, it puts us in the past, but we're still here. Mm -hmm. We are still here and we're thriving. And we need to like implement our indigenous ways of knowing within these systems so we can regain our cultural identity and we can be comfortable and confident with who we are as a collective whole and being. So I don't know, I just have suggestions like, you know, it could be a water teaching in a geography or a science class, you know, and I think that that would just be so valuable to not only Indigenous people, but also non-Indigenous people mm -hmm. as well. Oh yeah, for sure. And one of the biggest arguments is people say it's inappropriate for kids to learn. Well, if we want to implement it, say K-12, mm -hmm. there's so many ways you can do it. Like, for kids who are not yet in middle school, like middle school is around the time you learn history, like you start having history class, so you'll learn about heavier topics. But for kids younger than that, it's like orange shirt day, red dress day, just like little things where just give them a understanding of where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. You don't need to get deep into the trauma. You don't need to do that. There's books. There are so many resources for children. Just start talking. You can start talking with the culture mm -hmm. with young kids mm -hmm. because. Obviously, it's hard for young kids to grasp certain things, but they can grasp these things. If they can learn about other things, they can learn about this. Mm -hmm. So, and then as you get older, you start talking about other really heavy topics like world wars and history class. Mm -hmm. We need to also learn about Canada's genocide. And that is something that we don't touch on. It's touched on, not talked about. Mm -hmm. We don't want to, I have never had a test on anything to do with Indigenous peoples in Canada. Yeah. So I just think that's like absolutely crazy. Like I'm like, we talked about settling, we talked about those little things, but we need to talk about more. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so important because if you don't learn in school, not many people are going to get the initiative to do it outside of school. Like when are you going to learn? Like mm -hmm. you need to learn, and that's the place to learn. Mm -hmm. If we're other people are saying, well, history class is like unuseful. No one wants to. Like mm -hmm. no one wants it. Everyone says that it's not useful. It's the past. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, there are certain things coming from our history books that are the like they're still leading into the future. They're in our present. We have it right now. Like, mm -hmm. If we learn about what happened then, we can start talking about what's happening right now. Mm -hmm. But if you don't know any of that, what are you supposed to do? Yeah. 
So I think it's so important for us mm -hmm. to move all of this into the school in the school um, curriculum one way or another, mm -hmm. and you can easily make it for different mm -hmm. age groups. Yeah, and I remember you you guys mentioned about um, dipping our toes, mm -hmm. and we barely dipped our toes, and I think it's so important when we move forward. And I remember in when I started learning about uh, residential schools was in grade eight, and we barely talked about it. We watched a movie and then our teacher never went over it, nothing like that. And I had to kind of go on my own and kind of do my own research. And I think it's so important that we implement it from a young age. Um, Kai and Kelly, throughout this podcast, we've had the chance to discuss various topics about reconciliation. As Indigenous peoples yourselves and having your personal story about your Indigenous identity, what is one takeaway you think listeners should reflect on pursuing their journey of reconciliation? Um, I would really like listeners to take away that reconciliation takes the effort of everyone and the, there are so many ways they are able to help with the reconciliation journey and I want them to talk about the 94 calls to action. I think that's so important and think of how they can help all of them be heard and we gave a lot of resources, we gave a lot of knowledge throughout this podcast and I think if they could take away one thing, I would want it to be empathy. I want people to take away that they need to be empathetic for everything to continue going mm -hmm. on in a good path because you need to feel it and you need to care for anything to happen. Mm -hmm. And if you don't care about something, you're not going to help the situation. But if you care and show empathy, mm -hmm. we can go on the right track. Mm -hmm. I think that's what we need to take away from it. Yeah. And for me, I think it's just pretty much the same thing. I couldn't have said it any better, <laughs> you know? like. It is the collective responsibility of everybody in Canada to reconcile these relationships, you know? Like, Indigenous people were the first people on these lands. Like, it is our land. And um, I think we need to educate ourselves and um, understand who are we reconciling with. Because, you know, we're, we're reconciling with Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, but also, like, Indigenous and Indigenous people. Like, we're still reconnecting to our culture and all of that, and I think that, like Kelly said, we need to be empathetic and recognize that although it's history and we need to understand the truth to move towards reconciliation, that it, it's a very sensitive topic and that um, it's so big. I think that's probably my biggest takeaway. Reconciliation is so big, and listening to this podcast, you're, like, dipping your fingernail into mm -hmm. uh, an ocean mm -hmm. of, of what you could learn. So I think that moving forward, it's important that everybody takes the initiative to do their own research to make sure that we can reconcile the relationships in a positive way um, between non-Indigenous and Indigenous peoples. Oh yeah, and like, as we finish up our podcast, I'm thinking like, there's so much more I wanna talk about. As we get on one topic, like one topic, we have to stop ourselves from continuing because we only have so much time. But this is like, you can't sum this up in under an hour. It's not going to work. It doesn't. There's so much. Thank you. Such an abrupt ending. We would like to take a moment to thank our wonderful sponsors, the Department of Canadian Heritage, Canada Life, Power Corporation, and WestJet for making this series possible. Experiences Canada is a nationally registered charity that helps young Canadians to explore their country in ways they may have never imagined through reciprocal exchanges, forums, and other experiential learning opportunities to travel and connect with one another. 
please visit our website, www.experiencescanada.ca, for more information on our programs. Be sure to check out the other podcasts in our allyship series and learn alongside us as we work towards becoming better allies in all aspects of our lives.